Good morning. Psalm 62, verse 1 begins like this. I wait quietly before the Lord, for my victory comes from him. Father, I pray that these words become part of who we are. We offer this time to you and ask that you speak to us boldly and that you sow something so important into our heart, Lord. You are our victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to Journey. We are so grateful that you are here today. If you're new, a special welcome. We're grateful that you show up week in and week out. And if you're just checking us out, I'm just as shocked as you. I'm one of the pastors here, so thanks for sticking with me. Uh, we are doing this sermon series called the Psalms of Summer. We're opening up the center portion of your Bible. If you just open up to the center portion, usually a psalm comes out, and usually Psalm 118, verse 28, that's kind of where the center of the Bible is in most of Bibles. And we've been going through the Psalms of Summer, and it's been emotional. Why emotional? Well, because the Psalms teach us emotions. Jeremy really set it up well last week about the Psalms, and last week we talked about a lament and a dying deer. So if you weren't here and you want to know more about dying deers, check out the sermon. If not, don't worry about it. It was a great message about lament. The Bible has all kinds of an, uh, emotions. hundred and uh, Out of 150, 70 of them are laments or anger. So it's an appropriate behavior to have anger or sadness, but what you do with it, I think the, the gospel and the message would help us understand. And so we have been going through this emotional sermon series, dealing with our emotions, and today I want to talk about victory. And I want to ask you a question. And I want you to kind of let it dwell for a little while, and hopefully at the end of the sermon it'll come back into your mind, but when is the last victory that you can celebrate in Jesus Christ? When's the last time you can go, man, that was God? When's the last prayer that was answered? When was the last event that you're like, man, there's only God can do that? When was the last time that God showed up, maybe through a provision or something where you're like, man, that was so God, that was so incredible? And, and, and I want you to kind of think about that, and let's kind of get back to that in a little bit. Well, mine was over a month ago. Now, I don't know if you guys remember this, but over a month ago, we did this thing called the Country Fair. It was in the Acorn this weekend, if you guys didn't see it. We had a bunch of families eating watermelon, and we had the watermelon contest, and after a month, they put it in the Acorn. And so out here in the, uh, out here in the grass, we had a bunch of jolly jumps and did this old Country Fair, and truthfully, it was one of the great victories of our church. So... You guys awake? You okay? Everybody want to clap for that? It was super fun. Man, I'm like taking it out of you guys. Now, the week of that event, I had a bunch of people. I have a bunch of people in my life that check on me, ask questions from my parents to a couple other people. Are like, how's your week? Is, are you guys busy? Are you worried? And the truth is, that week was such a fun week for me. I worked a lot of hours. I lifted a lot of water bottles and all kinds of stuff. But the truth is, it was a great week. I had a plan. I had a specific job that I was given that my responsibility was to do. And so really that week was one of the best weeks I've had and that was a great victory for me. But truthfully, that's not the victory. You know what was the victory? Was you all going out into the park and sharing the love of Jesus Christ one person at a time. So give yourself a hand for that. 
one of my uh, good friends, uh, Dave uh, Artuzo, who's on the council, came up with this marketing data that we had. And we had almost 400 people show up uh, at that event. And of that, we had about 85 or 90 people that never had been to Journey Step on the property. That's an incredible outreach that we get to do. And so that was a true miracle. But listen, we needed a great leader to lead us through that. And here's the thing about Journey. We tend to do things very last minute. And to do this event correctly, you probably should be planning six, six months out. About six weeks into it, we were like still kind of thinking of what name should we call it? And then finally, my friend Michelle, who was just up here, who's been gracious to join our staff meetings and our, and, and, and our organizational plan, she came up and goes, I'm gonna take this thing over. I've got a plan and I'm gonna put it all together. And so Michelle, let's give it up for Michelle. She contacted all of you and she was super detailed in what she wanted from you. She gave me my little area that I'm responsible for. And, 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 and she said, I did a pretty good job. That was great for me. But she's an incredible person, and she's really a blessing to us. So the church has given her a gift. Do you want to come and get it? Yeah. Inside is a picture of me so that you and Scott could take you. And I also want to praise Scott for all that he's done as well. He was out here hustling. Scott has been a big integral part of it as well. So Michelle, thank you so much for helping us as a church be successful in what we get to do. It was truly a blessing. And it was one of the great miracles that I'm like, man, only God can do it. And I know Michelle would say the same thing. So thank you so much, Michelle and uh, Scott as well. So let's get back to the verse. But here's what I want you to know. As we're talking about victories today, and as I'm celebrating what Michelle did, don't believe that there wasn't miscommunication and misfires and conflict and trials and issues. There's always that before you get to the victory. That's just how life is. And I hate that, but that's just where it is. So let's get back to the text. Here it is. Let's read it again. Psalm 62, verse 1 and 2. It says, I wait quiet before, quietly before God, for my victory comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will never be shaken. Do you believe that? I love that song Tara was singing more than able, that sometimes we start believing in our head that God doesn't move anymore. He doesn't do miracles. He doesn't do that stuff, and we kind of believe that. But the truth is the song's message to me was, no, he's still more than able. Don't give up on him. Don't quit before the miracle because the miracle's here and that's what we're trying to experience here. So here's where we begin today. The first point of the message is this. The greatest victory in God is salvation in Jesus Christ. Do you guys know that? The greatest victory in God is salvation. There's nothing greater than that. You can make a billion dollars or $250 billion. It's not greater than salvation. You can buy a home. You can get married. You can have a relationship. You can start a business. You can do all these wonderful things, but never, nothing on this earth will ever reach that top of salvation. Now, I don't know if you guys were here, but a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Psalm 116 and verse 12 says, what can I really bring to King Jesus? What can I bring as an offering? And it said, all I have is a cup of my salvation. All I have to offer you is a, uh, my salvation. I love one of the worship songs. It says, all I can really bring to a King Jesus is a hallelujah, my salvation. That's all I have. 
Nothing else he doesn't require. He doesn't want anything from you. He doesn't want your blood. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want any of that. He wants your heart. And when, you, when he has your heart, you start to give him your time and your talent and your money. But that's because he wants you above all. And our salvation is the greatest victory. The second thing is, and this is the most important thing I'm going to teach today, which is this silent surrender. Now, listen, I'm not silent. If you know me, I like to talk and gab and sometimes over-talk my situation, but it's this idea of silent surrender. What does the text say? I wait quietly before God. Now, what happens is we wait for God sometimes, but it's a lot of jabber. You know who you are complaining it's like where are you God why God why you know and you have no idea but the truth is he's saying I want silent surrender today I'm going to spend some time now I don't know about you but I have a list of questions when I get to heaven first thing I'm going past Peter I'm going to Jesus and go here's some questions one of my top five is this why do we have to wait so long now, when I say wait so long, I'm not saying put in a prayer request because I'm going to be late in my rent next week. That's not late. That's not waiting. That's a couple days. You know, that's not waiting. I'm talking about waiting one year, five years, 25 years, 40 years on the Lord because sometimes God requires us to quietly wait, and I don't get it. And I've always wondered, why is it such a long, arduous task to just wait upon the Lord? And you know what, as I was studying this week, some of the, some of the uh, devotions I got out of this was really incredible, and hopefully uh, it makes sense to you. So here's what I feel like God answered to me. Here's, here's what he wants me to do. He wants me, myself, and my heart, and everything about me to quiet down. And on the other side, he wants my world Everything in my world, all my circumstances, all my struggles, he wants me to quiet down and silently wait upon him. So myself and my world, the nature around me, everything to quiet so that when victory comes, I can clearly see it and I can clearly hear it and point to only God can bring that victory to me. Does that make sense? He's like, I want you to quiet everything down. And wait on me so that only God gets the glory of whatever he's going to do in your life. And some of you are in that place. You're at the point of the Red Sea that you need to, the, the parting of the Red Sea. But trust me, if you quietly wait, God will bring that to fruition. Let's move on. Verse 3. It says, so many enemies against one man. All of them are trying to kill me. To them, I'm just a broken down wall or a tottering fence. They plan to topple me from high positions. They delight in telling lies about me. They praise me to my face, but curse me in their hearts. Good friends. I love those kinds. So what is David trying to communicate here? This the theme of this psalm seems to be coming from a place of trouble. There's a, there's a conflict in his life, and so he's writing this psalm, and this is a really cool part. He's writing this psalm in conflict. Many people believe it's where Absalom, David's son, has going after him and is trying to take away his kingdom, and he does, and he moves into the city of David, and he sleeps with some of his concubines, and he gets David out, and then he starts to chase him, trying to kill his dad. So that's where they believe this psalm was written David in exile running from his son but here's the thing that's so interesting about Psalm 62 though he's struggling and he needs help and he needs a savior to kind of help him from his son who's doing evil things against him 
he never asks anything of the Lord. Isn't that weird? I don't know, in my prayer life, I'm asking constantly, can you do this, can you do this? Oh, don't forget this, I emailed you last week about, you gotta get that taken care of, and this, and this has been going on for five years, can you do something? I'm tired of setting up and tearing down, can you help out? Can you get us a building, right? And so, here's the thing, he never asks, and it's incredible. A lot of times we feel like we have to ask God specifically, and that's the only way. And I don't, I'm not saying that's not true. But what I'm saying is sometimes when I pray for others and other things, the Bible says he answers what I need because I'm thinking of other people. And so quietly surrendering and trusting that God is going to meet us in that place. The second thing it says is, I don't know about you, but it seems like all of a sudden being a Christian has a lot of enemies. It does. Seems like on social media, it seems like in, in, in our society, there's a lot of, uh, of, of angst against Christianity. Maybe it's just me, but I was with a bunch of youth at, the, uh, at, at a beach house a couple weeks ago, and I wore a Christian t-shirt like I have on today, and I walked into the grocery store to pick up some vegan bacon or something for my friend Marcus, and um, as I walked in, I had a Christian shirt on, and this guy looked at me like in disgust, like, ugh, ugh. And he just had this like disdain, like, and I'm like, oh, hi, how are you today? And I was being super nice, so my personality's so glowing, it couldn't have been that, right? <laughs> the truth is, you can just tell something about faith had turned him off. Whatever it was, there was something about it. And the truth is, people are disgruntled today, and you know what God does? He grabs a group of people every Sunday to remind you that we are the hands and feet of God, and we are ambassadors of God's love. And we get an opportunity to share peace even in disgruntled, chaotic world. You are God's ambassadors, and you are the peacekeepers in this world, and we get to share that love week in and week out. And I love that about who God is and how he challenges us. The world looks down upon people. We are not supposed to, I know this sounds weird as I say this, we're not supposed to look down on people, even though I'm on stage, I'm not trying to look down, well, maybe you, but not her. Um, we are not to look down at people. The text talks about people come from this high position and they, they look down upon people. That's not the appropriate way to look at people. We are to look up in a humble position, not from a high position. And that's what David is teaching us. When we are looking down, at this, uh, down on people, we are taking God's seat and his position in this world. And that's not, that's not our position. And here's the reason why. The text tells us that many people will smile at our face and go, oh, hi, how are you? And in their heart going, I hate this person. And the truth is, the world needs truth and they need to see you living for Christ and accepting all the negative and still giving peace back because we are his ambassadors. Now, in your text, it says, in mine, it says interlude or selah. It means to take a break. So let's take a break for a second, and let's talk about it. Now, when you guys take a break today, when you get like a second at home, what do you do? Grab your phone and sit on the couch and go, let's scroll and flip or purchase. That's like a break. So instead of me like taking a break and stopping, let me do what you do and talk through your break and give you some ideas of what the break is really saying. Here's what we're supposed to do. I'm just going to read from my Bible. This is what I feel like God wants me to do. 
uh, first, uh, Second Timothy chapter 3, here's what we should do. The first four verses we've read, and here's what Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says. All Scripture, Psalm 62, which we just read, the first four verses, all Scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. That's the purpose. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what to do uh, what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. As we are taking a pause today, I want you to realize God is trying to take some of the edges off and shape and mold and build you so that you can be a blessing and, and, a, and an offering to this world because of who Jesus Christ is. And in our break, I want to talk to you about this man named Napoleon. Anybody familiar with Napoleon? That Napoleon from many years ago. I don't know if you know the value and the leadership. If you study a little bit of history, you look at Napoleon. Did you realize that he was a great leader? I mean, people that study history go, this guy was an incredible leader. The guy that defeated him, his name is the Duke of Wellington, said this about Napoleon. He said, when Napoleon comes onto the battlefield and his army, Napoleon himself is like 20,000 extra men just because of his, his stature and his uh, intrigue and his willingness to get people to move across the battlefield. Napoleon had a great, great impact on people and here's one of the things that Napoleon says about victory it says victory belongs to the most persevering victory belongs to the most persevering now if you're like me I looked up persevering because I'm like well what does that really mean let me give you a definition and then I'll put the sentence together with the definition persevering is continuing in a course of action despite difficulty or delay in achieving success so here's what Napoleon is telling us today he says victory belongs to those continuing in a course of action despite difficulty or delay in achieving success that's how we persevere we continue to move forward and that's what God does he gives me the ability to walk through my life and understand who God is okay breaks over let's go back verse 5 it says this let all that I am here it is again wait quietly before the Lord for my hope is in him he alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress will I will not be shaken my victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Now, it seems like a lot of repetition. At the end of the message, I'll explain repetition. But here again, he is repeating himself. In the first seven verses that we have read, I and the word my have come up 14 times. What does that mean if he says something over and over? Church, you guys are pretty smart. What does that mean? It's important. It's important. 14 times in seven verses, I or my is being put in there. And so David is saying, I really want you guys to understand this about my relationship with God. This is an earnest cry to humanity. David is describing his part and his victory in God. And he's saying, church, you need to understand this part as well. And he says, it's a silent surrender waiting upon the Lord. And in that, I start to see my victory come through Jesus Christ. Thanks, Shelly. Uh, 
about 17 years ago to the weekend. It's crazy how it all comes out. I came to a place where I silently surrendered and I had one of my great victories. Before I became a pastor, my pastoring career almost got derailed. I was, off, I was um, given a job at Crossroads as a junior high interim pastor. They were hiring a youth pastor, but I was charged of teaching the junior high. And they thought, well, what damage could this guy do to the junior high kids? You'd be surprised what I could do, trust me. We duct taped one of the kids on the wall and left him there for 30 minutes, but don't tell his parents. Anyways. At one point, while I was just starting my pastoral career, I made a mistake. It was a small mistake. I still believe today it was a small mistake. And I'm not going to tell you the mistake. That's for your mind to wonder. But it was a small mistake. And what happened was the pastor called me and my wife into the office because of this mistake. And I, again, it's a small mistake. But it was a mistake. And there, there, there was an intentionality to the mistake. And me and my wife had all kinds of reasons and explanations on why we did what we did. And if we would have told them, they might have understood. But as I walked in there, I told my wife, we were married about hmm, maybe three or four months. So it was a new marriage. And I told her, we're not going to say anything. So we didn't really know each other that well. I'm sure today she would understand it more. But we silently surrendered. And at one point, as I'm getting disciplined by the pastor, I'm biting my tongue. My wife's looking at me going, say something, say something. And I said, nope. And you know what? That silent surrender really catapulted me to where I'm at today because God put me on staff almost 17 years ago at Crossroads Community Church as a pastor of missions and on the facility side. And it really started my career where I almost made enough money to live. I didn't quite make enough money to live, but that was the blessing. And so when we silently surrender, God gets all the victory. And that's one of the greatest victories because I was just like you in church and God called me to the sage and called me to ministry. So the idea here is quietly surrendering. That was one of the great victories that I'll never forget. Verse 7 says, My victory and my honor come from God alone. When I bite my tongue and I trust that God is good, He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach, can reach me. So here's my little pulpit that I'm on right now. Ventura County struggles with comfort and safety. We do. And we are blocking revival because like my house, trust me, if you've ever been to my house, I got a garage door opener. I don't talk to the neighbors. And it's like we're about comfort and safety. Don't mess with my comfort and safety. And that's going to be my new idol. It's not God. It's not Jesus. It's comfort and safety. And then I go to church and then I worship. And here's what I mean. David is trying to show us something about where his comfort and safety comes from, where his victory comes from, and it's different than the American dream. Here's the American dream. The first thing that we, com- we bring comfort in is our money or lack thereof money. This stock idea. It's like, I got to have money so that I can retire. My hope is one day that I'm going to retire. I might be on staff until I'm 90 or until Jeremy kicks me off. I have no idea. We, it could happen. God is more than able, so maybe, maybe not. 
But the idea here is our money or lack there of money is really becomes our comfort or safety or our biggest worry. And that's not what David is saying is his strength. How about your home or where you live or the lack of where you live? Some people live in cars and apartments. Some people live in big homes, small homes. Some people have lots of people in the house. Whatever it is, this is actually, a, my, this, I looked, I was thinking of my wife and I like this. She wants a big grass place and we've got like this little piece of grass that's like six feet. So, we look at where we live as another place of comfort and safety. And if you look at David, he's running and living in caves. And he's saying, this isn't gonna be my safety. And the last one, and don't throw stones until I tell you this, a lot of us in first service made this great grumble. Also, our government. In America, we put our trust in our government. On one side of the aisle, it's through programs and processes and this idea. And on the other side, you're interested in protection and guns and borders and all of that. Wherever you're at, the government is still part of your safety net and safety plan because we don't have enough money in Ventura to get our own Air Force or military or to do our own welfare program. And so we rely on the government somehow. And David is saying this. Listen to what David is saying. This is really interesting. He says, he is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. And I found this place. It's in Sri Lanka. Anybody been to Sri Lanka? And it's got this refuge, this place that I believe God is trying to communicate. It's this rock fortress where nobody really can reach. It's like a place where you can live. You see the jacuzzi in the middle? That's incredible. And this is how God wants us to understand that when God is our fortress, nobody really is going to come up the walls for a while and get you. It's going to take an act of God to get up there, and that's what he's trying to show us here. Verse 8 says, Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. David is trusting in God alone. David is trusting in God alone, and he's trying to teach us a lesson here. And here's the lesson, and it's kind of a, uh, um, a visual lesson. If, if I'm trusting in God, I've got two feet on the rock. But if I'm trusting in this world, and I've got one foot on the rock, and the other foot I'm putting in quicksand, no matter how strong my leg is, if I fall over, it's going to be embarrassing, no matter how strong my leg is, if I have one foot on the rock and one foot in the quicksand, over time, I'm going to fall in the quicksand. I've got to put both feet on the rock, my fortress, my saving grace, and trust that that's going to be a blessing to me. Oh, people, he says, trust in Jesus. Pour out your heart to God and put both feet on the rock. You can't be in two places, the rock and quicksand or the Jesus in the world. You're going to fall because you don't have the strength. You have to put both on the rock. All right, so let's do another interlude, a Selah moment. Again, it says interlude or says take a break. Again, I'm going to talk through the break. I don't know if you guys recognize this. We did a couple of songs in worship, but the second half of the message as we're talking about victory today has a little bit more worship than normal because we are trying to extend it because today's about victory, and you're going to see at the end why. And so it doesn't mean the, the sermon's going to be longer. It means that we're going to experience God more. And so... Hang out, make sure you don't leave. We've got a couple of songs at the end to really worship God. Now, as we're reflecting and, and, and observing what David is doing, David puts his initials in the Bible. 
Do you know that it's okay to write in your Bible? It's okay to write and highlight and scratch on it. If you've ever seen someone, I've got like four Bibles, so I got some written, but it's okay to mark it up. God's gonna be happy with you if it looks a little beaten and worn down. But David puts his initials on this scripture. He puts my before some of the names of God. And now, if you don't know me and my teaching, here's what you need to know about my teaching. Here's what I say a lot on sermons. We look back in our life to see faith in God. We look backwards. The Bible was written 15, 20, 30 years in the, in the future, and they looked back and said, look at all Jesus did, and they wrote down these letters. So we look backwards in our life and say, oh man, that was God, and that's like I see God's faith. And that helps me look forward so that I can have hope in God. So let's look backwards. Let's look at those last few verses. I went to a Baptist seminary, and they taught from the King James uh, Bible. Now, I'm a dyslexic man. I struggle with dyslexia. I work really hard to not jack up words, but I do mesh words up. I say things backwards. I sometimes read backwards. And so for me to read the King James is almost nearly impossible. It's like a feat I can't do. So I had to read from the New King James, and here's how I learned it. The New King James, I just want to look back at the last few verses and see how the New King James Version writes. Here's what it says. My soul, here's David putting his initials. My soul, wait silently for God alone. For my expectation is from him. He is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense and I shall not be moved or unshakable. In God is my salvation and my glory. And the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Ten times in the King James Version, the way that I learned this text, it says my. David is putting his words and his name on some of the names that we call God. And he's saying this is my God and he's doing things for me specifically so that I can grow and understand. He says trust in, in him all the times you people. Know him, pour out your heart before him for God is our refuge. David is not content in just God alone. He's emphasizing here earnestly, hey, my faith and my actions match where my heart is. And he refuses to put one foot in the world and one foot in the sand because he knows that's gonna bring failure. There's a sense, if you study this scripture, there's a sense in this particular text that talks about David is tempted just like all of us, it's tempting to make the world a, huge, a better priority. I want to retire one day. I want to do that. But if that's not God's plan, that's not God's plan. The idea here is David is tempted by things of this world. And he comes to this one conclusion. And he's telling us in verse 8, trust in him at all times. Trust in him and put both feet on the rock because that will bring you the victory that you need no matter what your heart and your mind says about this world. Victory belongs, Napoleon says, to the most persevering. Let's continue verse 9. It says, common people as worthless as a puff of wind. <laughs> That's us. And all the powerful or the rich people are not what they appear to be. If you weigh them on a scale, they together are lighter than a breath of air. 
I, I love this verse. David, David is now teaching us in this psalm what not to trust in, what not to believe, where not to put our hope in. That's what he's talking about, where our victory won't come from. He's saying, in the first part, he's saying it's not gonna come from common people. And most everybody in this room, but a few, are common people. That means we just have an average bank account with a little bit of money and we pay our bills and we try and do things right. Those are the common people. And the truth is, the common people, like most of us, us, if we had the resources, we would be doing incredible things with our money. We'd be spending millions helping people and building the church and, you know, doing great things, but we don't really have the resources. Rich, on the other hand, they seem to talk a big talk, but when, when they perform, it seems to be little. If you've ever had someone that you know that has lots of money, it seems like, oh man, they could do great works with their money. And it always seems like to let us down a little bit. Like, eh, that was cool. You spent thousands, but it seems like you could do more. And it seems like people that have a lot of money sometimes let us down. And I think that's what David is talking about. He says, we sometimes put expectations on people that they really can't meet because only God can bring that victory. Verse 10 says this, don't make, this is an interesting sentence. In the middle of this victory thing, here's what it says. Don't make your living by extortion or, or uh, put your hope in stealing, Jeff. Did you guys see Jeff in there? That's how I used to live if you don't know my story. So uh, you're not supposed to make money illegally. And then it says, and if your wealth increases, don't make it the center of your life. I went to Chico State. Any wildcats in the house? Yeah, Shelby. My daughter's here. Um, Wildcats, you know, it's good. In 1995, it ages myself, when I was in school, do you know what they said in the business department? 27% of all businesses start with illicit money, illegal money. From sex trafficking to drugs to gambling to guns, whatever people can do illegally, 27%, so over a quarter, one-fourth of our businesses are, 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 are used with illicit money and starting businesses. Isn't that incredible? And so our job is to make sure that money doesn't control us. Don't do illegal things for gain, even as Christians. And then it comes to the question on the second half, does money make life easier? I mean, yeah, but no, not really. I mean, if you need a little bit of money, obviously it's nice to have a little bit, but here's what I've learned over time. Money is not evil, but what I do with it and how I live with it is evil and what it becomes to me. But here's what I have. I, before I became a pastor, I used to make a lot of money and um, I used to have a lot of things. And the more money I made, the more problems I had, the more things I had to upkeep. You know, I've been in different parts of the world where people are living off nothing and they're some of the happiest people because all they did was had the ability to live for that day and God was just enough for each and every day of their life. So I get wanting to have more money, but money can't or shouldn't be the center of our life. God should. And in that, there's this place of victory. And finally, at the end, the last two verses, David shows us where to put our trust and where our victory really comes from. Verse 11, God has spoken plainly, and I've heard it many times. Let's come back to that sentence in a second. Power, O oh God, 
belongs to you. Unfailing, O Lord, it's yours. Here in this verse, I love this because this is something that I teach. We've already talked about it today. Repetition. This is called the principle of repetition. When things are uh, repeated, uh, it's important. And here it's on display in this scripture. Here's what David is saying. I've heard this several times, God, and I've learned this, and I'm learning it again, that this repetitive motion and this repetitive stuff in Christianity is important. We are the great forgetters. We will forget everything by the end of lunch. So let me give you a little hint. Everybody say victory. That's the sermon and that's what it's about. So when you forget about it at two o'clock, it's about victory. Just remember that word victory. And so that's what the sermon is about because we are gonna forget. And so Christians need to hear it over and over so that we can understand it. And here's the conclusion. Power, oh God, yeah, that's yours. It's fully yours and I have to learn this. I don't have power. God, you have all power. I am powerless. You are all powerful. So in you is the victory. And so the day that I learn that I have no power and God has all the power is the day I start to live better and I start to see more victories through Christ Jesus. Amen. Unfailing love. Jeremy's taught this a couple times to us. It's called Hesed. This unfailing love or mercy, that also comes from you. I have been blessed uh, to speak into many different places outside of church, weddings and life celebrations. And one of the things that I say in life celebrations, I talk about love. And I talk about this love because it's important that you understand this. I always, I've been using now for about two years this quote from Helen Keller, but basically says life has to end, but love doesn't. So if you've ever lost someone, you still love them, even though their life has to end. Because, do you know why you still love them? Because God is love and God's love never ends. And so love goes for eternity and it goes for a lifetime and then beyond. That's the beauty of God's love and that's this unfailing love of God. It never ends because God is love and it helps us understand that God is love. It's really incredible. David reminds us that humans don't bring victory, only God can. God has the power to punish and also the power to pardon us. To punish us and to pardon us. Here's the last verse, uh, 12b. Surely you will, repay, be, uh, you will repay all people according to what they have done. You know what the best part of Christianity is? No matter how I'm treated on this earth, God's got the last word. And in that last word, he says he's going to have a table of my enemies before me. So that guy who scrawled at me will be at the table, hopefully on the good side. But the table will be just because God is just. And that's the God that we serve. So as we look back today in today's message, what does this text remind us? What does this Bible verse remind us about victory? Here's four things, and then we're going to go into some worship. Number one, that victory is in Jesus Christ, our salvation. It comes through salvation. The only way that we can get to God correctly, the Bible tells us, is through Jesus Christ. He is the door. He is the door. If you're online today and you're listening and you need a solution, the only way to get to the greatest victory of all time is through Jesus Christ, that door. And you know, it's a choice. And here's the choice. God is or God isn't. 
He's either going to be everything or he's going to be nothing. And that's the choice that every human has got to make one day at one time. The second thing is victory comes when we wait upon the Lord. And it's never easy. If, you, if you've gotten victory in Christ, you realize it's never easy. And you know what? It comes from this silent surrender. Quieting down and surrendering to God. Number three, victory doesn't ultimately come from humans. He uses humans, but it doesn't come ultimately from humans. There's a point where Jesus is at uh, in front of Pontius Pilate. And Pilate's like, hey, I have the ability to kill you or to make you alive. And Jesus says, no, I'm giving you that ability. If I want to, I could snap and I would have an army of angels here destroying everything and everyone. Jesus says, I'm giving you that authority. Victory comes ultimately from God, though he uses human beings. And here's the last one is victory comes through trials. I don't know where you're at today, but I know some of you are struggling. And do you know the story of the parting of the Red Sea? The story goes before that, that there were 10 plagues. And everything was upside down in Egypt. And finally, the Pharaoh says, oh, man, go. Get out of here. Take all your people. Take all of your animals and go and worship your God. Well, a few minutes later, he's like, what have I done? Those are all the workers. And he starts to chase them. And so he starts chasing them. Now, the Israelites come up to the Red Sea and they're in this trial and they start complaining. Why, Moses, would you bring us here? We're gonna die. And they could see the army coming and they were an hour or two away. And victory comes when we come to the point where only God can move. And God allows Moses to part the Red Sea and great victory comes. And I know some of you are right at that place. But listen, don't quit before the miracle happens. Trust that God has a great victory for you today. Victory occurs when God is in the forefront of who you are. And so what do you do after God does a victory? You know what you're supposed to do? Silently wait for the next victory to happen. Victory belongs to those, belongs to the most persevering. And that begins right now. For someone here or someone online, the greatest victory that can happen in their life is through Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. And Father, I ask that your spirit start to stir people up. Pray that that person online that's weeping says this prayer and their life is changed. If that's you here today, if you're online or if you're listening to this podcast, all you have to do is say some words and you will receive the greatest victory that life can bring. And it goes like this, Father, forgive me. Come into my heart, come into my soul and be my Lord and Savior. You died upon the cross for me and you rose three days later so that I can be in eternity. You are my victory, Lord. Holy Spirit, take over my mind, body, and soul and help me become a disciple, a follower of you, an ambassador of your love so that I can be a blessing to people in my life. We claim this above all things and all God's people said, amen. amen. So let me ask this question before we worship. What was the last victory that you had in Christ that you could stamp and say that was God? I hope you got an opportunity to worship that, but if you didn't, join us as we extend our praise today and celebrate victory in Jesus Christ. Amen.